Let's pray together as we open God's Word. Father, we thank you that we have seen in our lives you move mountains, things that were in front of us, things we didn't think we could get over, things that were challenging us, things that kind of knocked the props out from underneath us. And we thank you, Father, that you are a God who is mighty, and you're a God who is strong, and you're a God who can handle anything that goes on in our life. We pray, Father, that uh, as we go through this Relevant Faith series, you would help us take you out of uh, a little box that we have, and we would see you as the God that you are, the great creator, the one who sent his son just for us. And I pray, Father, that our lives would be changed because of who you are and how you work in our lives. Be with us, Lord, as we look at your word today, and we pray that you would teach us as only you can do. You're the one that has to open the heart and mind, and I pray, Lord, that you would do that this morning. Thank you for each person here, Lord, for the journey that every person's on And I pray that you would uh, be with us today. In Christ's name, amen. So this past week, uh, we had here at at the Bible Chapel, we lost uh, two longtime members uh, of our church. Uh, Paul and Darla Tripoli uh, were uh, tragically killed in a motorcycle crash last Saturday. And uh, yesterday... Uh, we had uh, their memorial service here. Uh, I've been here a long time, and it's the first time that we had uh, um, husband and wife uh, uh, doing a memorial service. Uh, if you didn't know um, Paul, uh, he was uh, uh, a guy never short for words. Uh, he always had something to say, and you could see him from a distance because he always wore very loud shirts. In fact, he told me, you got to pick it up. You are boring with what you wear. And so he bought me a shirt one time, and he said, you got to start wearing this. And it was a Paul Tripoli shirt. And uh, I wore it a few times, but uh, I, you know, the, the, the reviews were mixed, let's just say, <clears throat> on the shirt. He and Darla uh, had just celebrated their 25th wedding anniversary. In fact, as you know, we uh, commemorate wedding anniversaries uh, at our, memori- at our um, celebration service, our 20, 25 years and 50 years, and they had already sent in their pictures uh, for the 25th uh, wedding anniversary to be celebrated on Celebration Weekend, and we'll, we'll be doing something with that. They were both full-out followers of, uh, of Jesus Christ, and um, yesterday at the service, I read part of uh, Darla's testimony And I want to share some of that with you. She came to Christ uh, in 1993 at a Billy Graham uh, crusade when Billy Graham was in Pittsburgh. And listen to uh, Darla's story that uh, she shared when she became a member here. She wrote out her testimony. I've had many, I've had, I had made so many wrong choices and wasn't really living the life that I wanted to live. I knew I was a sinner and needed renewing. When Billy Graham invited us down on the field at Three River Stadium, 
There was nothing that would hold me back from going forward to submit to God and accept that Jesus died for my sins. It was a profound moment in my life. I felt indescribable peace and joy. I started attending Bible study and started to listen to praise music, which really lifted my soul. When I surrendered my life to Christ, I knew that I was on a brand new journey in my life. I know that I still have a lot to learn, but I have grown so much spiritually over the last few years. I love Him now more than ever, loving Him, serving Him, and looking forward to seeing what else He, will, he is going to do with my life that will touch others and move me closer. Listen to what she says. I do not fear death. We'll look forward to the day when I can finally see him and be with him for eternity. By his grace, I am his and he is mine and nothing will ever change that. I do not fear death. We'll look forward to that day when I can finally see him and be with him for eternity. Can you say that? Can you write that in your life journey? Everything that Darla said in her testimony is right here in this book we call the Bible. Everything that she described regarding peace, knowing who she was as a sinner, knowing what she needed, studying God's word, the fact that she didn't fear death, but knew that as a believer, as we said yesterday, absent from the body, what? Present with the Lord. All right here in this book we call the Bible. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is this for real? Or is this something we just tell ourselves to help get through the grief process? The thing we have to ask ourselves is, are the words recorded in this book truly life-transforming? Or are they just a collection of stories and parables along the line of Aesop's fables or some other fictional book we would read. We have to ask ourselves, is this truly God's Word or not? And if we say it's truly God's Word, that's a whole other sermon series, isn't it? We've got to live like it is. Today, what I want to do is this, as we continue this Relevant Faith series, I want to give you five reasons why the Bible can be trusted. Five reasons why we can say yes with an exclamation mark to the question, is the Bible reliable? Now, what I'm going to share today is taught in a seminary class for a semester, all right? So I'm not going to be able to drill down on every one of these points. That's why we have Wednesday night coming up so that you can discuss it there. That's going to be September the 4th. And that's why this coming fall on Wednesday nights, everything we've been talking about, Dave and I have been talking about in the Relevant Faith series, we're going to have opportunity to really drill down on those things. 
But today I want to give you five reasons why we believe that the Bible can be trusted. The first reason is this. It's the internal claim of the Bible. The Bible itself says that it is no ordinary book. The Bible itself says, makes the claim, I can be trusted because I'm God's Word. There are a lot of passages we could go to, but let me go to two. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, the apostle wrote this, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, but no pro- for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible itself makes this claim. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. This is not a man's book. This is not a man's writing. The Holy Spirit carried along certain individuals, 40 authors, over 1,500 years we'll see in a little bit, carried along and gave them with their personalities, with their background, with their training, in their language, gave them the words that he wanted in this book. The word carried along in Greek is the picture of a sail on a sailboat. Here's the sail, here's the boat, and carried along is the wind that drives the sail. Certainly, there is the instrument of the sail. Certainly, there's the instrument of the boat, but it's the wind that drives it along. Certainly, there's the instrument of man. Certainly, there's the instrument of technology throughout the ages, but it is God who drives those words along. Second Peter chapter 1 is a passage you need to know, parents, students, high school students here, when you look at the internal claims of God, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Here's another one, you got to get down, and that's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Paul, writing to young pastors, says, all Scripture, not some Scripture, not bits and pieces of Scripture, not the pieces we like, not cherry-picking, But all Scripture is God-breathed, is breathed out by God, or some translations, inspired by God. All Scripture comes from God's person. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Again, he uses different people, these 40 different authors, but it is his word that is being breathed out. And because it's God's word being breathed out, it is profitable for teaching, it's profitable for reproof, it's profitable for correction and training in righteousness so that the man, that's generic, man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. That's what the Bible says about itself. It makes the claim, I am the word of God. Now, what does self-proclamation prove? Nothing, right? I could proclaim I'm Santa Claus. That wouldn't prove I am. But the reason we have to start with 
The self-proclamation, the claim of Scripture is this. Scripture itself puts itself on a different level. If the Bible just said, I'm just words, these are just words of men written to help you along, to give you some, you know, some morals to live by, that's one thing. The Bible didn't say that. The Bible says, I am God-breathed. The Bible says, I am inerrant. The Bible says, not some of me, but all of me is inspired by the living God. And so that frames the argument of Scripture. That puts the discussion on an entirely different level. And so now we have to see, okay, the Bible says it's God's Word. How do we look at other aspects, at other evidences to prove it's God's Word? So the second thing we want to look at after the self-proclamation, the claim, is the construction of Scripture. The Bible is not uh, one book but a collection of 66 books. In fact, the Latin word for Bible that we get the word Bible from is Biblia Sacra, which means holy books. So when you pick up a Bible, even though Bible sounds singular, you're really saying, here are the holy books that God gave to us. Holy meaning set apart. These books came over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors. They were written by men from all walks of life. Moses was trained in the top universities of Egypt. Joshua was a military leader. Solomon was a king and a very wise man. Matthew was a tax collector, a despised tax collector. Luke was a doctor. Paul was a Pharisee. He, was, he adhered to the Old Testament law. He was a legalist, a strict legalist. Different men from different walks of life. It, written in three uh, different places. Jer, uh, Jeremiah wrote from a dungeon. David, uh, Daniel wrote from a palace. Paul wrote from a prison. Luke wrote while traveling. It was written on three different continents. It was written on, in Asia. Africa, and Europe, written in three different languages, Hebrew, the Old Testament language, Aramaic, the common language of the Near East, and Greek, the international language at the time of Jesus. Now, just think about that. 1,500 years, 40 different authors, different continents, different languages, written different places, written with a different genre, historical, prophecy, Letters, poetry, and yet all 66 books have one common theme. You know what the theme is? Jesus. Whether you are in the Old Testament or the New Testament, you're talking about Jesus Christ. The book could be summed up with John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, will not perish, but have everlasting life. So when you are reading the Bible, whether you are in the Old Testament or whether you are in the New Testament, you are focused on Jesus. Old Testament, we're looking forward to him coming. 
New Testament. We're looking back at his coming and asking, since he came and died and rose again, how do we follow full out after him? Christ is the center. The Bible is Christocentric. Jesus is the center of Scripture. Dave's going to talk more about that next week. The claims of the Bible, right? Here are the claims. This is the Word of God. The construction of the Bible, 1,500 years, all these different authors, but you have this one theme not contradicting itself. Amazing, isn't it? People who didn't even know each other are writing these books, and they're not contradicting themselves. The third part is preservation. How in the world did this book, written back in 50 AD, how is it preserved to today? So you have the Old Testament already in place, the Scriptures. And when it comes to the New Testament, you have Jesus, He came, died on the cross for our sins, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches a sermon, 3,000 people trust in Christ, they're from all over the world, and then they scatter back to their areas of the world, and the church begins. Here are believers like us, some of them meeting in homes, some in larger buildings, and they meet together to worship, always singing, and then they meet together to hear God's Word. It was not written down at that time. Different apostles would do different teachings. They would record certain things at particular times. But then as the church grew and it started to spread, Paul, as he started churches, for instance, would go to a church. He would found the church. He would usually stay there a while and make sure the church was strong. And then he would leave, and then he'd hear something was going on. So he wrote a letter back to the church. Let's say the church in Rome. The book of Romans, the letter to the Romans. And so the church in Rome has the letter, and they say, this is from Paul, the apostle. We should share this with others. So they would copy it, and they would share that letter with others. Sometimes Paul would say, be sure to read that letter to other churches. And that copy would be made and sent to other churches. And that copy would be made and sent to other churches, and people would say, I, 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 I want Paul's letters. I, I want to know what was written. Matthew decided, again, God carrying him along, we need to record everything Jesus did. I was with him. And so Matthew writes his gospel around 50, 60 AD, and he says, I'm going to write about Jesus, and I'm going to write to a Jewish audience, and I want them to know that Jesus is the Messiah. So when you read Matthew, Matthew is writing to Jews saying, Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. Mark was actually writing to Christians in Rome getting ready to go through persecution. If you're going to die for your faith, you better know what you believe, right? And so Mark said, I am going to encourage them. Mark was not an apostle, but he traveled with Peter. And so when you read the Gospel of Mark, you're getting the information that Peter has shared with Mark. And they probably, I don't know, co-authored it, but they wrote together as they are traveling. Luke says, I am going, Luke was a doctor. I'm going to research this thing. I'm going to make sure everything in there is right on. And so he researches it. We would think that Luke talked to Mary. What was, what was it like, Mary? 
It was the birth, the travel. He got it. So he writes to this guy named Theophilus. We don't know who Theophilus was. It's a Greek name. He says, Theophilus, I have researched this thing. I've got it down. I am writing to you so that you can know for certain that Jesus is who he said he was. And then John says, he traveled with Jesus, right? We just studied, first, we just studied John in, in 1 John. And John says, I want to make certain that everybody knows how to become a Christian. That's why John writes his book. He said, I could have recorded a lot of stuff. He says, I, got a, I, had, a, I had so many stories I could have recorded, but the book would be too big. So I'm picking those stories that will prove that Jesus is the Messiah and there's eternal life when you believe in him and his work. So these copies are put forth. Now they're written on papyrus from the papyrus plant or parchment from prepared skin of sheep or goats or antelope or vellum, calf skin. So they're writing it on that. They're rolling them up and they are taking them to different places. Because they are written on material, originally written on material that does not exist, that does not last through time, there are no original letters or gospels or scriptures that we have. You understand that? There is no letter of Paul that Paul penned in some library around the world. We do not have any original writings. But here's what happened. Over time, these were copied. They were copied painstakingly. And at some point in history, there was even a profession for copying Scripture. They were called the what? Anyone know? Called the scribes. And scribes would sit in a room at a table, and they would have the original, or as close to the original, right in front of them, and they would copy letter for letter, word for word. It's interesting, in the original Greek, there were no space, to save paper, there was no space between the words, so they would start writing it, and here they would do one thing that would always check them at every page. They would write, they would get the original, and they would hear the writings. That's supposed to be writings, right? And they would go find the center letter here, and then find the center here, and they would say, this letter is at, they would count it, this letter is at the very center of this page. And then when they made their copies, they would double check to make sure the same letter was right in the middle of that page. You can study this. This is a fascinating study to see how these scribes meticulously recorded God's word for us. If the letter wasn't in the middle of that page, they probably thought some things they shouldn't think, and they tore it up because that did not go. This had to be right on. Now, we have several thousands of those copies that exists today. Not copies of the whole Bible, but portions of a book that was written. And there are more copies of Scripture than any other ancient book that we have. I just want to show you some of these numbers. 
If you think of a book like Caesar's Gallic Wars, big book of antiquity, it was written around 100, somewhere between 100, 100 uh, B.C. and 44 B.C. The early, so it's written 100 to 44 B.C. The earliest copy we have is 900 A.D. So the time between when it was written to our earliest copy is 1,000 years. 1,000 years, and we have 10 copies. Uh, Aristotle. Aristotle wrote uh, between 384 and 322 B.C. The earliest copy we have of anything Aristotle wrote is 1100 A.D. That means between the time he wrote it and our earliest copy, there is 1,400 years. Okay? Now, let's look at the, old, the New Testament. The New Testament was written between 40 A.D. and 100 A.D. James is the first book written around 44 A.D. The earliest copy we have is 125 A.D. So think about that. From the time it was written to the earliest copy, remember I said Caesar was a thousand or something? It was uh, Aristotle 1400? Time it was written to the earliest copy, 25 years. That's unheard of in the study of uh, ancient literature. And how many copies do you think exist? Any ideas? How about 24,633? Now you say, okay, you set us up, you lowballed those others, <laughs> right? So let me give you the book that's in second place. More copies with the Bible than any, anything else. Now I'll give you this second place book Homer's Iliad. How many of you have read Homer's Iliad? Come on, seriously. I'm not talking about those cleft notes. How many of you really read it? Okay. All right, Homer's Iliad. Homer's Iliad was written 900 B.C. The earliest copy we have is 400 B.C. That means from the time it was written to the earliest copy, there's a span of 500 years, right? This is the second place book. The Bible has 24,633, Homer's Iliad, 643. So 24,000 more copies than the second place book of antiquity. Why is that? Because this is God's word. People died for this book. They believed it so much that they would do anything to preserve it. They would die for the preservation of it. And I'm going to tell you, you don't die for Homer's Iliad. But you do die for the Word of God. In the first 300 years of the church, while these letters were being uh, sent around, the church was under persecution. And so a lot of the books were burned. In 303 uh, A.D., Diocletian burned all the Bibles. And if you had a Bible, then you were going to be put to death as well. 
303. So think about it. For the first 300 years, Christians had to kind of be underground. There were, there were times when they could be a little more public, but underground. 313 A.D., Constantine came into power. Long story behind that, but Constantine makes Christianity legal. He actually says, some of you who lost your property during the persecutions, you can have your property back. And he makes Christianity the state religion, which is a whole other story. But now, you can go on the public square and say, I'm a Christian. You couldn't do that before. You can get burned on the, at the state. Now I'm a Christian. So now we have the Bible moving back and forth a lot. We even have other people. Now the church is going on. We have other, other believers writing letters to churches. So how do you know what's or, or, the book, right? How do you know what's really inspired versus what some other believer, maybe good truth, but wrote? May not be good truth, too. In 397 A.D., the church fathers at the time came together in Carthage, and at the Council of Carthage, 397 A.D., they said, these are the 27 books of the New Testament. Back in 90 A.D., there was a council of Jamnia that already said these are the 39 books of the Old Testament. Now, how did they distinguish, how did they know, how did they determine what were the 27 books? Again, you had other letters going around, right? How did they know? They used six criteria. I'll go through these quickly. Number one, was the book written by a prophet, apostle, or one associated with the apostles? Was it written by a person who walked with Jesus, or was it written by someone like Mark who walked with Peter who walked with Jesus and got firsthand information from Peter? Second criteria, was the writer confirmed by acts of God? Did we see power in this person's life? If God was going to use that person to move, to, to move along, where there, was there power in this person's life, like we saw in the apostles. Third criteria, did the message tell the truth about God? We have the Old Testament. Here's what it says about God. Does the scripture that we have here, does this letter contradict anything we know about God? Because God cannot contradict himself. Fourth criteria, confirmed by Christ, the prophets, or an apostle. It's confirmed. Let me give you an example. Luke chapter 24, 44. Then he said to them, Jesus did, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of, the, of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What did Jesus just do in that verse? He just authenticated the entire Old Testament. He said everything in the Old Testament must be fulfilled. He just authenticated it. He did that on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, right? When he was walking with those guys. And he, he went from all the Old Testament and showed them what the Messiah, what was going to happen to the Messiah and proved to him that he was it. So anyone who tells you we need to unhinge ourselves from the Old Testament, the Old Testament's not important to read. They are contradicting the very words of Jesus. 
who says all of the Old Testament confirms who I am. Number five, did it come with the power of God? This was an important one. When people read this book, was it just like a letter from another person? Or was there something in that book when people read it, it was life transforming. Now, again, they had the opportunity. They had a lot of churches. There was a lot of, of, the, of Scripture out, and they had the opportunity to see, does this book really change lives? If it's just a book written by man, it's not going to change lives, right? But if it's a book written by God, now you've got a supernatural thing going on. And that love letter, those words are going to be powerful and transforming. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23, Peter says, You have been born again. Peter, we've been born again. How did that happen? Peter says, God's Word. Through the living and abiding Word of God. God, His Word showed you who Jesus was, showed you how to trust in Him, showed you how to live with Him. Peter says, it's God's Word. You've been born again through the living and active Word of God. Number six, was it accepted by the people of God? Did the churches accept it as God's Word? We see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God. And then back to that criterion of does it come with the power of God, Paul says, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. It is transforming. The Bible does its work in your life. So the 39 books of the Old Testament confirmed as the canon, the word canon means the standard, Council of Jamnia, 90 AD, books of the New Testament, 27, confirmed Council of Carthage in 397 AD. Okay, a couple things here, real, real quick. We have 24,000 copies, right? These scribes, different continents, different languages, they write these copies. And so there are some differences in some of the copies. And there's a whole science to this called textual criticism. There's a guy named Daniel Wallace who is a professor at Dallas Seminary. He was a few years older than me. I had his, I had his notes, his original notes, but he's also now the founder and executive director of the Center for the Study of uh, New Testament Manuscripts. And in the study of textual criticism, here's what Wallace says. The differences, you take these 24,000 manuscripts and you put them all together and you look at all the differences. 99.5 of all the differences fall into two categories. The first category is spelling differences. No theology, no changes, a spelling difference. So a scribe somewhere in Asia uh, puts another L to the letter, the name Paul, right? Change anything? No. Again, 95% falls into that category or falls into this category, uh, changes that are not translatable into English. So sometimes in the Greek language, 
the uh, article will not appear in the English. For instance, uh, you could say uh, ho theos, ho is the God, the God, and so some scribe could put the God, but you don't have to put the God since there's only one, right? (laughs) So you could just put God. That would be a difference. One of the 99.5, but you say, well, time out. I'm concerned about that 0.5, and you should be. So here's some examples. One example I have time for of the 0.5. We just uh, have gone through uh, John, and in John chapter uh, 2, verse 25, and this, I'm reading out of the uh, English Standard Version, ESV, and this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. Pretty significant statement, right? This is a promise he made to us eternal life. Right after the word us is a one. And so you go to the bottom of the page and you read under one. Some manuscripts use the word you. And this is the promise that he made to you eternal life. This is the promise he made to us eternal life. This is a promise he made to you eternal life. That's the point five difference. Does that change anything? No. There is nothing in textual criticism that changes any of our doctrine at all. Man, this is a book. Study it. Study it on your own. This is a book that can be trusted. Number four is prophecies, and I'm going to leave that for Dave next week and go right into the last one. We've got the claims of Scripture internally. We've got the construction of Scripture, 1,500 years, 40 different authors, all these continents, different places. We have the preservation of Scripture over all these years, and we have the prophecies. Dave's going to talk about that. Experience. Here's a book that if you read it, will change your life. If you read it, it will change your life. Here's a book that is the best seller of all time. And yet those who talk against it normally have never read it. If you read God's Word, it will change your life. Because it is God's Word. He speaks through the pages of Scripture. C.H. Spurgeon says this. C.H. Spurgeon was an old pastor in the 1860s. There seems to me to have been twice as much done in some ages in defending the Bible as in expounding it. But if the whole of our strength shall henceforth go into the exposition and the spreading of it, we may leave it pretty much to defend itself. Many suggestions are made and much advice is offered. This weapon is rep- uh, recommended and the other. Pardon me if I offer a quiet suggestion. Open the door and let the lion out. He will take care of himself. Why are they gone? He no sooner goes forth in his strength than his assailants flee. The way to meet infidelity is to spread the Bible. The answer to every objection against the Bible is the Bible. Read it. That's my challenge to you. Read it. 
And I promise you, I promise you, it will change your life. That's what it did to Emil Kalet. He was a Frenchman. He grew up in a home that was atheistic. His parents had nothing to do with God. He describes his life as naturalistic. There was no Bible at all in his house. And he was very intellectual, and he went off to college to study, but then World War I broke out. And so he finds himself on the front lines at the age of 23 during World War I. Listen to what he says. To say that this naturalistically inspired education proved little help through frontline experience as a lad of 20 in World War I would amount to quite an understatement. When your buddy, at the time, speaking to you of his mother, dies standing in front of you, a bullet in his chest, what use is sophistry of naturalism? Was there a meaning to it at all? One night, a bullet got Emil shot in the arm. He was transferred to an American hospital, and there he was in recovery for about nine months. Uh, and then while he was there at the hospital, he had already met a girl who was a, had gone to church, and she met uh, him. They married while he was in the hospital. He's now out of the war, and he comes back to, to, to find who, does life make sense? Is there meaning at all? Listen to what he says. He said, I returned to my books, but they no longer were the same books. Neither was my motivation the same motivation. Reading in literature and philosophy, I found myself probing the depth of meaning. During long night watches in foxholes, I had this strange way of, I, I, I had in a strange way been longing, I must say, however strange it, it may be, for a book that would understand me. But he said he couldn't find any book. So he decided to write the book himself. He got a leather um, uh, journal, leather-bound journal, and he started putting in quotations, things that stuck out, you know, like we would, you'd see on Twitter, or he didn't have Twitter, but see on Twitter or Instagram, some cool statement, and he started writing it down. And he said, when I filled it up, I was gonna go, I was gonna go find I'm just going to write this book that, under, that understood me. The day came, he said, when I put the finishing touches uh, to the book that would understand me, speak to my condition, and help me through life's happening. Beautiful sunny day it was. I went out, sat under a tree, and opened my precious anthology. And as I went on reading, however, a growing disappointment came over me. Instead of speaking to my condition, the various passages reminded me of their context, of the circumstances of my labor over their selection. He said, I was disappointed. I hadn't found a book that understood me. At the same time, as God would have it, his wife was pushing their new little baby in a carriage, and the street was crowded, so she turned off on a side street. It was a cobblestone street. If you've ever pushed a baby carriage on a cobblestone street, it's not a good experience for the baby, right? And so she found a piece of grass, a patch of grass to go off on, and she saw this little path leading up, and she went up the path, and it was a church. 
in the church, there was a pastor, and she said, hey, do you have a Bible in French? Because at her home, Emil had said, we don't have a Bible. So she got this Bible from the pastor, and she took it home. And she knows she's not supposed to bring it in the house. As she stood in front of me, she meant to apologize. But he said, I was no longer listening. A Bible, you say? Where is it? Show me. I've never seen one before. She complied. I literally grabbed the book and rushed to my study with it. I opened and chanced upon the Beatitudes. I read and read and read. Now aloud, with an indescribable warmth surging within, I could not find words to express my awe and wonder. And suddenly, the realization dawned upon me, this was the book that would understand me. I continued to read deeply into the night, mostly from the Gospels, and lo and behold, as I looked through them, the one of whom they spoke, the one who spoke and acted in them became alive to me. The providential circumstances amid which this book had found me now made it clear that while it seemed absurd to speak of a book understanding a man, this could be said of the Bible because its pages were animated by the presence of the living God and the power of his mighty acts. To this God I prayed that night. And the God who answered was the same God of whom it was spoken in the book. The Bible is a book that understands you. And I challenge you to pick it up. And I challenge you to read it. But I got to warn you, when you do, you just let the lion out of the cage. And you will meet in the pages of the Bible, the author, the living God. Father, I pray that you work in each person's life that you, Lord, speak to us through your word. I pray if there's anyone here doubting scripture, there's plenty of evidence. And I pray that they would open it up and meet with you, the author of the book that understands me. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.